So the twin truths are I'm as bad as the scriptures say I am. And then, and I'm reluctant to believe that. And then when I do jump the hurdle of faith and actually believe the Bible's witness against me and just how sinful I am, then I, I face yet another, uh, the other twin truth that's equally hard at that moment, maybe harder to believe. And that is, if I am as bad as the God's word says I am, I must simultaneously believe this other truth, that he is as good as he says he is. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Word Processing's Cover to Cover series, in which our goal is to move through all 66 books of the Bible, one by one, in order to grow not only in our understanding of them individually, but also in our understanding of how they fit together as an inspired and cohesive whole. Well, today we come to the short prophetic book of Hosea, and to guide us through this often neglected slice of scripture, we welcome Todd Murray to the podcast. Todd has labored in pastoral ministry for almost 40 years and is currently serves as pastor of family ministries at Grace Emanuel Bible Church in Jupiter, Florida. He has composed and recorded several collections of worship songs, as well as authored a handful of books, including a commentary on Hosea, which will no doubt help us in our conversation today. Todd, it's good to talk to you. Thanks for taking the time. Uh, I'm delighted to be here. Well, let's start here. When we come to the book of Hosea, Todd, where are we in the storyline of scripture and in the history of Israel? Well, you're in an interesting place. Politically and economically, the northern kingdom of Israel is at a high point. Um, they, they're doing, uh, other than the kind of the golden age of David, they, the kingdom hasn't extended as broadly as it has here. So in one way, you could say Israel's at, in their glory. Mm. But spiritually, it couldn't be any more opposite. They're, they're really at their low point, and their sin is described in, in various ways by the Lord. I, maybe with some of the most disturbing parts of Hosea when he's documenting the sin is uh, a corruption of spiritual leadership. We sort of expect ordinary Israelites to be sinners. We sort of expect, we've read enough Israel's history to know that the kings aren't all going to be great. Uh, but when you start hearing about corruption in the priesthood and, you know, arranging for priests getting involved in uh, even political coups and assassinations, uh, it's just it's, it's really disturbing. So so we are really shortly before uh, Israel will be carted off by Assyria in the year 722. And so this is the last prophet to speak to Israel before their demise. Well, that sets us up nicely. Now, to get into the book itself, before we get into some of the details, I'm wondering if you could give us an outline of the book so we can get our heads around the whole. Yeah, we have 14 chapters, and you need to think of Hosea as you do really the other prophets, but Hosea in particular as an anthology. This is not necessarily a chronology of his preaching, but we have we, we do have a, a collection of his preaching. So uh, this is 14 chapters that capture a lifetime of prophetic ministry in, in a short number of pages. Uh, chapters one through three are definitely a standalone. It's Hosea's commissioning. Uh, it's, a, it's a morality play that's being played out before the people. The object lesson, of course, most people, when you think of Hosea, his marriage to an unfaithful woman named Gomer. Uh, and the birth of three children whose names factor heavily into the book, both to display Israel's sinfulness and God's tremendous covenant faithfulness. Um, so one through three hang together as a unit. Then in many ways, four through 14, then begin the, the anthology proper, the messages that thus saith the Lord from the lips of uh, his servant Hosea. Uh, some high points within that are chapter six, 
where Israel makes an attempt. We have a we he, we get to overhear Israel making a lame, false attempt at, at repenting and patching things up with the Lord. Uh, it's it's a it's it's an orthodox but grievous attempt at repentance. Uh, then chapter fourteen is is in some ways the sweetest part of the book because they finally repent and get it right. Though in God in His kindness and mercy, He literally has to supply a script for them. Hey. I even have to teach you how to repent. So let me tell you the kinds of things you didn't say in chapter six that you finally need to say. And they do. And then God's, you know, beautifully disproportionate, lavish promises that come on the heels of genuine confession and contrition. The other thing. So, so if you know, one through three is a unit six, uh, rather four through 14 is a unit six and 14 are important, but to not understand the function of chapter 11, where, it's sort of the apex of one of the things that characterizes this book are these whiplash-like reversals. I'm going to punish you, uh, but I'm going to be faithful to you, uh, it, it, which you have to hear in this way. God is committed to doing whatever it takes to bring his people back to him. It's never retributional. Even his, even the captivity of Assyria is ultimately redemptive in purpose. I know what it takes to bring hard-hearted people like you back to me. And that's always the, the beautiful purpose. So in chapter 11, you have this amazing moment where the Lord says, having just declared again, a serious coming. It's sort of like David in Psalm 32. You can either come the easy way or you can require the bit and the bridle. So Hosea, you know, the Lord just says, I am going to take you into captivity. But then these beautiful, powerful, shocking, uh, where God talks in the most emotional terms about the turmoil that would come to his mind if he were to utterly annihilate his people. Uh, and he just can't bring himself to do that. And it's very important. You could read those some of these reversals and think, is God talking out of both sides of his mouth? Is God apologizing for his wrath? Like, sorry, I had a divine temper tantrum. Please forgive me. Like we do in parenting sometimes. Sorry. <laughs> I believe what I said, but I shouldn't have said it like that. God's not doing that. He's not. It's the complexity of God's grief and 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 hatred of sin contrasted the blackness of that against just the beautiful light of his, you know, absolute covenant faithful love. And chapter 11, if you didn't understand that, it's the most shocking of the reversals. You could think God's double talking when, when he's not. It's just, it just shows you how committed his love is to his people. And his love is not grounded in Israel's performance or ours. It's grounded in him. It's grounded in his character. Now, you mentioned in chapter 14, even though God himself gives them the script of repentance and they say it back and it's much more complete and acceptable than chapter six, Assyria still comes and they still get taken off into punishment. How do we square that circle? That seems a little bit inconsistent. Help us to understand how repentance comes and yet still discipline comes. Yeah, the... God in his, in the perfections, you know, his, his love is perfect. His mercy is perfect. His justice is perfect. And he could never, he could never, you know, go, go back on his word, but it's a, it's a good question because you've got Moses pleading for Israel and judgment is averted. Uh, a stay of execution comes, you know, in the mind, in the perfections of God, clearly in his wisdom, Israel is too far gone for that. So the assurance, given the, the script of their repentance, the assurance is ultimately, I, I know what it will get. I've said it earlier. I know what it will take to bring you back to me. Assyria is actually what you need. So in addition to your repentance, kind of like with our kids, sometimes as a, in, in, in non-divine love, even in parental love, 
It's you, you still have to have the consequence of your actions while I simultaneously assure you of my love. And that's really how chapter 14 works and a future plan for national Israel in days to come. Now, you mentioned this already, but the opening three chapters of this book detail this living object lesson that God gives to his people, Hosea's marriage to Gomer and their subsequent children. Uh, it's dramatic, this object lesson. I'm wondering if you could unpack the weight of this lesson for us and how it was that Israel was supposed to respond. Yeah, it, 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 is, it is heavy. It is disturbing. It's for God to command a prophet to go marry an immoral woman. You know, it, it's a little debatable whether she's a prostitute per se, or just, you know, habitually immoral, but the, the, the shock is the same. Uh, so, so let me say first how not to understand it. Maybe that's the best way. And then how to understand it. So here's how not to understand it. I think we cheapen the book if we punt immediately to what I admit is maybe a secondary purpose of the book. And that is sometimes somebody's going through, they've experienced a betrayal, maybe a spouse who has betrayed them a prodigal child, uh, someone in their life that, they're lead, that they love and they have some spiritual uh, influence in their life and they're being spurned, to say, go to Hosea as a manual for how to respond when you're wronged and betrayed. Um, perhaps as a secondary or tertiary implication, it could be helpful, but that's to misread the characters in the script. What Israel was to learn from this was not, hey, Israel, if any of you had a, a spouse leave you, then you can relate to Hosea because he knows what that's like. That, that's not what it's about. This We are to identify the players. Hosea is God and we are Gomer. And when we make ourselves like, I know I'm like, I'm Hosea, that's like, you're missing the point. Hosea represents the faithfulness of God and Gomer represents the unfaithfulness, the spiritual adultery, the, the spiritual treachery, the disloyalty of Israel to their God. And so uh, I understand the, the temptation to, to take the book and make it a manual for when you've been betrayed. But, and you can get there, but boy, not after you've gone through this. I am Gomer. I am the betrayer, not the betrayed. Sure, earthly people betray me. But when people betray me, that's sinner against sinner. But when we betray, well, that's sinner against a holy, perfect God. That's, that's sinning against light. That's sinning against love, sinning against faithfulness. None of us could say, well, you might say in a marriage, I didn't deserve the unfaithfulness my spouse gave me, but, but I'm not perfect. So God's ability to be grieved and offended is infinite. God's ability to be hurt by their rejection is infinite. Ours is finite, and yet it is, you know, it is, it's devastating. So Israel was to understand the picture in this way. You are the woman of unfaithfulness. Mm -hmm. that Ho Ho and as Hosea went back to her and back to her and kept getting her and then hemming her in to keep her home, he's just saying that, Israel, that's you. That's how you treat me. That, that would be what the Lord was communicating to his people. And so the names of the kids that are the offspring of this immoral relationship, very significant. Jezreel means scattered. Uh, broken, you know, because of your autonomy. Uh, lo ruhama, uh, lo is the Hebrew way of saying no or ne a negation, not, you know, not, not loved, not forgiven, uh, no longer shown love or forgiveness. Maybe that's a way to say it. Lo ami, fully, fully disowned. Uh, that, that, that's not my people. And so I want you to have You'll have children, and these are to be their names. And again, God gloriously reverses it and says there's a day coming when all that's revealed. You won't be scattered. You'll be brought in. And you won't be called unloved. You'll be called loved. And you won't be called disowned. You'll be called 
re-owned. Uh, actually, the, the opposite of Jezreel of, of, of being scattered was actually being sown, the idea of uh, implanted home again, safe, secure, uh, fo- a foundation that's unmoved. So that's just powerful, disturbing, as it should be. And, you know, of course, that's saying what was the purpose of Israel getting it and saying, did Israel get it or not? The same question. Uh, I'm sure there were some who did. I know you enough to know that you're a careful handler of the word, Todd. When is it appropriate? And you did it appropriately a moment ago. So I'm wondering if you can give us some guardrails to this. When is it appropriate to take a message like this that was given to Israel and bring it to us today? So here we have Israel that's straying. They are unfaithful to God. And, and you rightly said, sometimes I'm like Israel. Like sometimes I'm like that. When is that appropriate to make that move? And when is it not? Are there any rules you can give us? Well, I, I think all solid preaching or personal Bible interpretation when you're sitting open for the scriptures is what, what you're trying to find is uh, what did this mean to the original audience? Um, and what is the timeless principle that would apply to all of God's people? And, and that's probably your safest way. If, if I skip by ever understanding what it meant to the original audience and immediately say, and this is you know what we're guilty of in home Bible study sometimes, what does this verse mean to you? Well, if we mean by that was, where does this verse implicate or convict you or encourage you or comfort you? That's legit. But if you're using that as an interpretive grid, of course, that's dangerous. It means what it means. When you say, what does it mean to me? What you're saying is, where where does your life and this timeless truth intersect one another? So understand what God intended for the original audience. And then uh, as a pastor, I have the privilege of trying to spend many hours distilling what's the timeless truth that's true of all God's people. So in the case of this kind of text, when God exalts himself, uh, maybe think of it this. Here here are what I consider to be the two timeless truths of the whole book, and it would be this. I I told my children, adult children, when I was explaining this book to them, I said, there are twin truths within this book that we find throughout the scriptures, but but powerfully displayed in this book. And here are the twin truths. Number one, I am actually as bad as the Bible says I am, and I'm reluctant to believe that. And uh, I'd like to think, well, I'm bad, but not that bad. So it's okay for me to implicate myself in a, in a text written to Israel and say, whatever was true of their hearts was true of mine as well. Well, how, how do I know that? Well, 1 Corinthians 10 says, there's no temptation taken man, but such as is common. Uh, Paul certainly made it clear in Romans 15 uh, that, you know, these things were written. These things from the past, the history of Israel were written for us to give us hope. Uh, 1 Corinthians 10 tells us these things were written, though Israel's failures, to warn you not to repeat their sin. So we know we stand in legitimate use of the Old Testament when we, when we refer to these important texts. Hebrews 4 says Israel had good news preached to them, but it didn't. what they heard did not profit them. Why? Because they did not unite what they heard with faith. So, so we're being encouraged to do what they didn't do and, you know, unite what we hear with faith. And, and so, so the twin truths are, I'm as bad as the scriptures say I am. And then, and I'm reluctant to believe that. And then when I do jump the hurdle of faith and actually believe the Bible's witness against me and just how sinful I am, then I, I face yet another, uh, the other twin truth that's equally hard at that moment, maybe harder to believe. And that is, if I am as bad as the God's word says I am, I must simultaneously believe this other truth that he is as good as he says he is. I am as bad as he says I am, and he is as good as he says he is. And I would say in some ways, 
We're spending every moment of our life doubting one or the other of those, and once in a while, clinging hard to both of them. Uh, If you only believe I'm as bad as the scriptures say I am, then you're hopeless in despair. If you only believe God is as good as he says he is, then you will treat him trivially. Uh, why wouldn't God love me? My teachers love me. My mom and dad love me. You know, <laughs> so, but no, no, the, the love is made magnificent by the fact that we're being convinced I am totally unlovable. And yet he loves me. It's not, it's not based in me. So those twin truths, um, I consider those the, 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 the simplest way to express the timeless distillation of Hosea. God's people are as disloyal, we're as disloyal as they were, and God is as loyal as he said he was. And that's pretty glorious news. That's great. Back to this object lesson that opens the book of Hosea. This object lesson is really built around the idea, and you've mentioned it several times, of covenant or covenant faithfulness. Maybe I should go back now and ask, what is a covenant? Kind of a baseline question here. How is it different from a promise how does the Mosaic covenant, that which Israel was under at the time of Hosea, differ from the new covenant that we're under in Christ's blood that we celebrate at the Lord's Supper? And, and maybe how are they related? I know that's a jumble of questions about covenant wow. faithfulness. Yeah, you just, you just asked me to climb a theological Mount Everest in, the, in two minutes. <laughs> well, I, I don't know that I have a great deal of, I'm not sure exactly, I'm sure you have something in mind when you ask the difference between a promise and a covenant. I would say... Uh, in some ways, they could be used synonymously. Um, but think of a covenant as being like you and I could make a promise. I promise to meet you tomorrow at 4.15 and, and we'll go have coffee. You could consider that a commitment and a promise. But think of a covenant more like a, I just signed a mortgage. I mean, it's a contract. So, yeah, you could say the stakes are higher. The terms are more defined. It's more formalized. And it's way more significant than you and I go into coffee. So in that sense, we could differentiate between uh, a promise and a covenant. You know, the, the Mosaic covenant, how is it different from the new covenant? Well, we could use terms like um, admittedly conditional in one sense and, and more unconditional in another. I'd need more time to unpack those uh, lest I be misunderstood But when we're talking about covenant love and faithfulness within this book, we're talking primarily about the fact that, well, let's think about the covenant that God made with Abraham, not only the call, but the unilateral covenant he made as as while Abraham is sleeping. That's maybe one of the most important things to understand about covenant love would be God takes full responsibility for it. Whereas most covenants, if you do this, I do this. If you don't do this, I don't do this. Well, when, when God made that Abrahamic covenant, it was, it was unilateral. And the only other party involved was God and God, his character and his character. And that's the kind of thing that Hosea touches on without necessarily always using the word covenant, uh, though he definitely says, you have broken my covenant. But we're talking about God's commitment to love his people that is grounded in his character, not ours. Well, something that comes up often throughout this book is the idea of knowing God. And just a couple of passages, a couple of texts from this book to illustrate this. In chapter 2, verse 20, God says, And I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, then you will know the Lord. And then in chapter 5, Verse three, I know Ephraim and Israel is not hidden from me. In chapter six, verse three, so let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. And then in chapter eight, verse two, they cry out to me, my God, 
we of Israel know you. It's this idea of knowing God that comes up all throughout this text. It seems that as we read through this book, that sometimes Israel knows God. Other times they don't really know God or they're growing in their knowing of God. God always knows Israel. Now, obviously, when we read this word, this phrase, there's more going on here than simply familiarity with God. What does knowing God mean, Todd, in in the context of Hosea? And what does it mean for us today? And how can we maybe move progressively today from knowing about God to knowing him the way he invites us to know him in a way that maybe can help us avoid the unfaithfulness that we read about in Hosea? Yeah. Well, one of those texts you read is, of course, in chapter six is a self-proclaimed knowledge of God that that happens in the middle of this sham repentance. So, uh, so before we look at that, just answer your question. Of course, no is a is is used in various ways in the Old Testament. Um, it's used as a a polite euphemism for the most intimate of relationships between a husband and a wife, and so this is this is not what we would call head knowledge or acquaintanceship. I would say this, it functions in the book as almost a synonym for the word love. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, and that makes sense given how it's used in to describe the relationship between a husband and a wife. So when God says he knows his people, he means he knows them deeply and intimately. When they claim to know God, uh, as you said, you know, that that would be like claiming an acquaintance with a celebrity that you've read a lot about them, but you don't know them. You've never been in their presence. And so most of their claims are are dubious. God's claim to know Israel or not. To answer your final question, what could we do to, to make sure that we don't know about God, but know God? Uh, well, one is dig, you, that won't happen apart from the scriptures. I cannot know anything of well, through creation, I can know about his power. I, I can know the vague contours of his mightiness and his creative power and beauty. Uh, but to understand the details of redemptive love, I would have to open the scripture. So I'll never know him intimately apart from his word. So digging into this book or any of the other 65 is is how you're going to not know about God, though Paul admits it's possible to in 1 Corinthians 8, it's possible to have a kind of knowledge that puffs you up. Uh, so I would say if you are gathering more information about God, I think the litmus test is humility, and that humbles you and, and blows your mind, then either, either in awe of his greatness or the size of his mercy, uh, the, the fact that you're included in his plan, you know, <laughs> that you are loved at all, that you are known by him. So I think humility is the way to know him. I just, I took a theology class. Did I really get to know God better? Or did I just learn about him? I don't know. Were you humbled by what you learned? Did you find yourself more repentant? Did you find yourself, you know, seeing yourself as small? So that inextricable link between my view of God and my view of me, when my view of God is elevated, my view of me sinks. When my view of me gets elevated, my view of God sinks. So no, in that sense, in the most intimate terms is how the, what grammatically how the word functions it functions within the book. You could almost replace it. They're claiming, I, 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 not just I know God, I love God. It's like, no, you don't. You love yourself right now. You love your sin. You love. So, so if you functionally in the book, it works like love, a synonym for love. How could we develop that? You know, dig into the scriptures. And if you see it producing humility, then you really are getting to know God. Because to know him is to be not merely humbled, humiliated, mm-hmm. uh, and stunned by undeserved grace. Mm-hmm. It really ties back to those two pillar truths you mentioned earlier, right? I am actually as bad as God says I am. God is actually as good as he says he is. And if I grasp those two things by God's grace, it's hard for me to be anything other than humbled in my knowledge of him. Humble, grateful, 
uncomplaining, uh, joyful, <laughs> which just shows you how how few moments of every day I am actually holding on to, to the twin truths because yeah. you know we're we're complainers and worriers and fretful and lots of things that that are not produced by clinging to those twin truths. Yeah. Near the end of the book, Todd, in chapter 14, God says this. He says, I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely for my anger is turned away from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. He will blossom like the lily and he will take root like the cedars of Lebanon. His shoots will sprout and his beauty will be like the olive tree and his fragrance like the cedars of Lebanon. It's beautiful language. It's a really beautiful, beautiful scene that God's describing here. My question is pretty simple coming to the end of the book of Hosea. And you've mentioned this a little bit in your introductory comments. When will this happen? After this, they got taken off into exile. Assyria comes in and conquers them. When will this happen? This picture that God describes as the book closes. Well, uh, no doubt some of your leaders think it, your listeners rather may already think it already has happened, but I think it's pretty clear that it has not happened. Uh, God's God's plan to, you know, we're in this window of mercy where for the most part, he has shown mercy to the Gentiles. Romans chapter 11 makes it clear that the purpose of God's astounding grace to Gentiles right now will one day awaken a kind of jealousy uh, in Israel. And while, you know, we got grafted into undeservedly, you could think of that grafting as a, an image for adoption, just that the God adoption, rather, God kind of brought us in. Uh, but the scriptures make it clear that one day that he will, if you will, pick up the program again, that the fact that Israel utterly betrayed the Lord will not in any ultimate sense negate the promises that God made to his people. So a day is coming in the future from, from the millennium to, you can even say in some ways it continues into the eternal state. There is coming a day where God reinstates. We're still gloriously grafted in. We're the outliers. But in our experience, because of how old, you know, none of us have lived long enough to see God doing a major work amongst uh, ethnic Jews but that day is coming, and that's what's being poetically described there, that, that future time when uh, just God will, you know, and every Jew will not be saved, but there will be this powerful, significant thing that the Lord does within the nation of Israel. It really is astounding when you come to the end of a book, and really, we're coming closer to the end of the Old Testament canon, and we've seen how often Israel is unfaithful to God in the face of miraculous, in the face of uh, the faithfulness of God in the face of his kindness and the face of his preservation, they continually turn their back on him time and time again. And we see that all through Hosea as well. And then even then he says, I will heal their apostasy. Even then I will love them freely. Even then, and what you just described, there is coming a day when even after all of this, even after now it's been 2000 years of them being provoked or being provoked to jealousy, even then he's going to bring them together. What a mark of his covenant faithfulness in spite of all of our unfaithfulness. In some ways, you could say what what the name Yahweh means in some ways is the promise-making, promise-keeping God. Mm. He, he's, of course, he's never going to break a promise. And the fact that it's been thousands of years is has absolutely no bearing. It, it does to us. It makes it harder to believe. But it's been so long that the Spirit of God, the Word of God would say, so? What does that have to do with anything? Oh, sorry, my bad. Because <laughs> to our temporal minds, that's a, that's a that, that becomes every passing year becomes more problematic. And Peter tells us how to think about that. No, that's that's not slowness to keep his promise. That's mercy. That's just more time for more people to be saved. 
Because when God pushes the go button on the next chapter, the, the, the mercy has a terminus. Uh, and so, you know, in some ways I want to usher that in. I want it to happen yesterday. And in other ways, I think about people I love who are lost. And it's like, oh, Lord, please delay in mercy. What would you say is the main thrust of the book of Hosea, Todd? Why is this book important? Why would God preserve it for us? I think to display, I think chapter 11 would be our best answer. In chapter 11, uh, I was telling you earlier that when I was preaching, you know, beginning at 1-1, by the time I got to chapter 11, I was grieved by preaching, you know, this chapter after chapter of the documentation of the nature of their unfaithfulness, their spiritual adultery, and their sin. So when you get to chapter 11, God expresses his love. When Israel was a youth, I loved him. Out of Egypt, I called my son. Uh, as you know, Matthew picks that up in the early chapters of the, the flight to Egypt, uh, not saying that to the original audience, they should have known this was Jesus Christ, but that Christ is the, the prototype of the son who obeyed in ways that clearly Israel did not. Uh, he says, so, so the idea is I was faithful to Israel from their youth, but the more they called, verse two, the more they went from them, they kept sacrificing to Baals. Verse three, yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. Uh, I took them in my arms. They didn't know it was I who healed them. That's the picture of like a when a toddler's learning to walk and a dad walks behind him and sticks his two index fingers out and the kid reaches up and holds onto those. And so it's the idea of teaching them to walk. And when they stumbled and fell, I scooped them up and, and held them. And the, so, so, so they were they were oblivious. So in verse one, you have the faithfulness of God to Israel as a youth. Verse three, you have the faithfulness of God. Verse two, you have there it is again, the unfaithfulness of Israel. The more I loved, the more they kept rejecting me and going into idolatry. So that by the time you get to, to verse 5, uh, where he says, they will not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria, he will be their king because they refuse to re return, against, return to me. And the sword will whirl against their cities and demolish their gate bars and consume them because of their counsels. So my people are bent on turning from me though they call on the one, no one exalts him at all. So at this point, I'm like, yes, bring the swords, swirl them. I'm done. 11 chapters, you know, the great and mighty me and my self-righteousness is like, I'm, uh, this is not fun preaching, Lord. This is just dark stuff. So I'm up to verse seven. I'm tracking with the Lord's thoughts. Okay, finally, bring it on. And then we get to verse eight, nine, 10, 11, where God says this, how can I give you up? O Ephraim, how can I surrender you, O Israel? I literally pushed back from my desk alone in my study and just literally said, God, how could you not? What do you mean, how can you? You just documented 11 chapters of reasons to let them have it, annihilate them utterly. Uh, just, it, it just says it's a natural human fleshy reaction. Even if it wasn't for me, for you, Lord, for your glory, for your reputation, what, how long are you going to put up with this? How can I make you like Adma and treat you like Zeboyim? Those were cities near Sodom and Gomorrah. So this is not the Lord backtracking, as I said earlier, going, oh, wow, I, I had a divine solar flare of anger that I have to now retract. He's just saying it's not that simple. Or maybe you think of it this way. Yes, the sword will come, and it did. Captivity will come, and it did. But that is not the end of the story. That does not mean the earlier promises made to Abraham are broken. It doesn't mean that. And that's, that's he's, so he's describing the complexity of emotions, of, of feeling equally two things, offended at their sin 
but abhorrent at the thought of ever stopping loving them in any ultimate way. So he says in verse nine, my, well, the, the very end of verse eight, my heart is turned over within me. All my compassions are kindled. It's the same word that's used to describe Joseph when he saw his brother Benjamin and just went and wept. It's the word described when the, the two mothers came, two women claiming to be the mother of a child came to Solomon uh, you know, and he said, well, cut the baby in half. And the one woman, all her emotions, don't, don't just give her the baby. Don't kill him. Well, now we know who the mother is. That deep visceral response. God is just saying uh, it, it would disturb me at the deepest level to ever go back and annihilate my people, go back on my promises and annihilate my people. So he declares in verse nine, having just said the sword will come in verse six. Now he says in verse nine, I will not execute my fierce anger. I will not destroy Ephraim. That's a synonym for Israel. Ephraim again, uh, in, in any ultimate sense. This is not permanent annihilation. Why, God? For or because, verse 9b, I am God and not man. The Holy One in your midst. So it's as if he's saying earlier, you know, the parenting metaphor I was using in verses one and three, that's not big enough to contain me. I'm, I'm, I'm bigger than that. I'm more complex than that. I'm deeper than that. That won't contain me. What word would I use to describe why I will not annihilate my people and show such extreme mercy? Because I'm holy. Usually we think of God's holiness being an expression of, you know, justice or wrath uh, we tend to reduce the word to meaning sinlessness. It doesn't mean that. It just means separate, other, different, different species, totally different kind of. And that's what he's saying. My love is not like any love you've ever known. It is not. You can't compare it to a parent's love. That's not big enough. And so he says, I, the reason I will not annihilate my people, though they will go into captivity for their good to bring them back to me, is because I'm not like you. I am God and not man. That's what you would do, Todd. You would say, enough already. It, it really, it's hard not to think of one of the servant songs in Isaiah where Jesus, 700 years before he's born, is declared as one who would not, uh, a bruised reed he will not break, a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. That's what humans would do. You see a, a dimly burning wick, you lick your fingers and snuff it out. You know, And there are people we think of as, as dimly burning wicks. They're never going to grow. They're never going to change. It's, they're too far gone. And God's just saying that the ministry of Jesus would not treat people that way. God says, I will not treat my people that way. So he defines his holiness in terms of, uh, of just unbelievable, faithful, loyal love. And that is, so you want to know why God won't do it the way, why when I push back from my desk and in my human peevish impatience, I'm done with people. He's just saying, I, I'm not like that. I'm not like you. You're a little bit like me because you're created in my image, but keep it straight. I'm not like you. You're just a little bit like me, but I am not like you. That's what we would do. And so he says, you know, I'm God and not man. I'm the holy one in your midst. And I will not come in wrath, meaning in the ultimate sense. He's not reversing verses five and six. He's just simply saying that's not the end of the story. And so God is, so love gets the last word. But in this book, you know what? God also, love had the first word. <laughs> love has the first word. Love has the last word. It's not sweeping sin under the carpet. It's going to be dealt with. And, and, and yet, you know, God, God just says, I'm not done with my people. So what was true of Israel? What's the timeless principle? 
It's true of how God deals with all his people. Our performance is not great. If our salvation hung on my performance and my character, I'm, I'm toast. And he remains just as covenantly loyal, loving towards me. Why? Because he's holy, because he's not like me. I'd be done with it. I would have moved on from Todd Murray long ago, gone on to some more interesting, faithful Christian. And he just says, I, I'm, I'm not like you. Uh, when I make a promise, when I set my love on a people, that never goes away. And of course, that can be that could be abused by an antinomian hyper grace movement, but that doesn't do away with the reality of, you know, of completely unconditional love. And so he promises, you know, they will walk after the Lord, verse 10. He will roar like a lion. Don't have time to take you there. But in chapter six, he was a terrifying lion, going to rip him in pieces. Now it's the lion calling everyone home. The sons will come trembling like, like birds from Egypt, like doves from Assyria. I will make them settle in their homes, declares the Lord. So verses five, six, and seven are true. That was going to happen, and it did happen. But verses eight through 11 also happened and happen for all God's people. So 11 is the, is the bright point in the book. 14 is, is sort of the epilogue of genuine repentance, but 11 is the breathtaking, you know, we've had this series of reversals. This is the, the, uh, the Mount Everest of the reversals. Wow. And God finally tells me why, because I'm not like you. I'm a holy God. I feel like we're already getting bits of your answer to this final question, Todd, but in your years of study over this book of the Bible, what has God taught you personally through Hosea? How has God used this text to teach, reprove, correct, and train you in righteousness? Well, the distillation of the twin truths are the first thing. To looking at my journey in sanctification and how I walk with God, even diagnosing uh, sinful tendencies, even, even in my confession, being able to to say, which of those things am I doubting right now? Is it that I am, you know, in pride, am I blinded and I don't see myself as all that bad? Or am I so convinced I've been such a wretch and such a failure that even me and my pride can't deny it? Now there's just no way he loves me. You know, so that mega message that that feeds my soul every day. It 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 comforts me when I need it, it rebukes me when I need it. It helps me confess and repent. I know the, the big ideas that I'm doubting because behind every moment of temptation is a sin. I'm being tempted to believe some lie either about me or about God. I mean, this, this began in Genesis 3. Doubt God's goodness. Doubt the veracity of his warning word. You eat it, you'll die. So that has helped me. But I would say reviewing my notes again this morning, just watching, just, just looking at my own notes of what, what's the timeless truth of what Israel was guilty of. And that is constantly making alliances with nations that God had forbidden. That was their way of trying to secure their life, trying to be for myself what only God can be for me. So I was just rebuked again today, just saying, ultimately, at the heart of their sin, their rejection of God was not, I don't feel like being orthodox today. It was God prospered the nation Israel. Sometimes he prospers me. Prosperity's never really been great for me, though I hate affliction <laughs> and I do anything I can to avoid it. The truth is that's been way better for me than prosperity. So if God brings prosperity, then I, you know, you can get proud and self-sufficient of that. So then God brings pressure. And under that pressure, the great temptation to seek comfort and relief in other places besides the Lord. Uh, so I'll either harden my heart. I'll, I'll find if you won't bring me relief, God, I'll, I'll relieve myself with some old 
worldly comfort that was mine before I knew you. Uh, so I would say to today, this week, framing up again, becoming aware, of, confessing to the Lord as I reviewed my notes, I'm really still not that different, Lord. I, I am Israel. I do look for comfort and relief in things besides you. I am tempted to trust in my own Assyrias. What was Syria? That was just a political alliance that would assure no danger would come to me. And I think it's a very timely word right now because as evangelicalism is on a collision course as never before with our culture in the Western world, I mean, you, you'd have to be blind not to see a tsunami of resistance coming against us. And as we approach that collision course, we're now under, we've been prosperous, right? We've had all kinds of gospel freedom for centuries now, unprecedented window. And that, you know, that prosperity has not been good for me. It hasn't been good for the church in many, many ways. So God's now bringing pressure. We are going to be tempted like Israel to find comfort, relief, coziness, security. You know, I'll say this, any moment of your life where you have been nursing a secret distrust of God, it's getting exposed right now by the Lord in these circumstances we're living with uh, in, in, in unique and powerful ways. So, so at this juncture, I think it could function for us as a strong warning. Look what happens. If you try to secure your life or seek security outside of the Lord, look what happened to Israel. Look what it cost them. Of course, God will be faithful, but who wants to grieve the spirit of God like that? So that, that is how it has. And even today reminded me. And, and I think how it, as a, as the future, as believers, as we're looking at following our unprecedented freedoms now, potentially un, unprecedented in our lifetime, not, not biblically unprecedented, but unprecedented in, in many decades, uh, resistance and the removal of freedoms, then uh, this is a great book to prepare us for that as, as a warning. So, you know, just remembering I'm, I'm Gomer. I'm, I'm not Hosea. I'm not the betrayed. I'm the betrayer and he loves me. And there is hope for sinners like us. Well, thanks again for all the time you've given us today, Todd, and for your enthusiasm and your pastoral heart. I so appreciate it. And I appreciate you helping us getting to know this book just a bit better. Oh, it's a, it's, you know, when you, yeah, it's, I feel like I'm introducing you to it like a close friend. So very, very happy. And, and I love uncharted parts of the Bible. Hosea is just not a book we don't track in the minor prophets. And so it's always a delight. It almost feels like virgin territory and a fresh journey when you hear the Lord say the same truths that the other 65 books say, but in ways that we're not so familiar with. So thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us this week. For more information about Oak Ridge Bible Chapel, the ministries of the church, or for more resources like this one, please visit oakridgebiblechapel.org. And make sure to join us next week as together we make our way through the Bible cover to cover.